Welcome to an unexpected episode of Samsara Audio. I'm joined by Shinkyu. He's somebody that I've followed on Twitter for a little bit. I haven't really got to know him yet, but I've been enjoying getting to know him this morning so far. And we're just going to be hopping right into a conversation. Uh, Shinkyu, welcome. It's good to finally get a chance to meet you. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, it's good to meet you too. I'm doing fine. Up early. Oh, relatively. Wide awake. So I saw your tweet about you were going on some leave for disability yeah. and that you were just like, hey, I've got a bunch of time. And I was like, oh, well, that's that sounds like he's got time to record a podcast. I just decided to shoot you a message. And uh, here we are. I'm excited to talk about, about Zen, about um, your journey, about your experience with the local temple. Um, is there anywhere you want to dive in first to talk about how you came to Zen, what you find so interesting about it. I don't have an agenda. I kind of want to see where things go. Well, and <clears throat> with me, my journey is kind of unique in that I practiced for so long just by myself for like 20 years, basically, from about the time I teen to about 35. So I was practicing meditation before that. That wasn't Buddhist meditation specifically. And most people... Nowadays, at least that I feel, they'll find a community or find a teacher. But where I was uh, growing up in the middle of nowhere in Michigan, there really wasn't that much access to teachers. So I just kind of forged my own path and sat zazen facing the wall just by myself all the time, wondering whether I was doing it correctly or any of that. You know, the big idea from Dogen at the time was what we call practice is enlightenment was how they translated it back then. Nowadays, they translate it as practice realization. But I spent decades just thinking, mulling over that phrase, practice is enlightenment, as a koan almost, not even realizing that that's what I was doing. You know, I'd sit down there on the mat and close my eyes, feel the body, and just be like, is this? I don't feel like a Buddha. <laughs> but the doctrine said, I'm awakened right now. And I just thought and worked on that for like two whole decades what kept you going all that time like you know wondering and having questions there was something there that was important or that you were trying to find yeah for me it would have been well at the time i didn't even know it i talk about this a lot online but i was very anxious i had a huge anxiety problem but i didn't you know growing up in the middle of nowhere here I didn't even realize that that's what that was. I just thought everybody <laughs> kind of felt that way, you know, had that stomach and the heart going and all that. So for me, I would be able to just relax and feel calm at those times I was on the mat. Calm that racing mind, calm that racing heart, calm that racing body. So it wasn't entirely utilitarian, but in a sense it was because I wasn't studying Buddhist scripture or anything like that at the time. At the very beginning of my Zazen practice, which is around 18, I did you know, the, the Buddha Dharma magazines and the Tricycle magazines, and I, someone recommended that I read the Diamond Sutra, <laughs> which at the time, like, I got about 20 pages into it, and I'm like, I have no idea what was even happening here. This, this sounds like absolute nonsense. So I set it down, and I said, maybe in many years from now when I figure out this whole meditation thing I'll come back to it and I'll try to figure out what's going on and yeah I think like 20 something years later 23 years later I did finally sit down to it and I read it through once and kind of like okay I think I kind of get what they're talking about 
and then I did this yearly thing where I would read the Diamond Sutra once every year and just go at it you know, sentence by sentence, write down however I understood it, how I thought that it related to my practice. And I'd say by the third or fourth time <laughs> I got through in that process, I'm like, oh, okay, like something really clicked and all that kind of esoteric language that they use that really non-conceptual language finally made sense and then started using that as well as a way to focus my practice. What do you think that the addition of the Buddhist scriptures brings to the practice of meditation? I think that maybe yeah. there's an idea that the practice should be sufficient, Elf, but what does the tradition and the text, what do you think that adds to um, either just Buddhism in general, but also maybe your specific experience? Yeah, there's a saying, I don't know who said it originally, but in Soto Zen we tell people, learn how to sit Zen, read enough to get to that point, or have a teacher show you how to do it, and then don't read any Buddhist material for about two years, just practice and see what happens. And like for me, I basically took that and multiplied it by about 10. But the scriptures will show you how to refine your practice. It's almost like a proof, like a proving, not contest, but you kind of get this way of understanding what you're doing that's particular to your own mind and your own situation. Then when you read, say, the Diamond Sutra, you have this aspect this other view that's been written by people who have also been sitting most of their lives and are all in a community of people that this is all that they do. So you can kind of look at what their idea is and then bring that worldview, like download it almost into your brain and live in that perspective for a while and see how that meshes the perspective that you've cultivated on the mat yourself. And as far as scholarly commentaries or even monastic commentaries go, they can be a huge help because we're so far removed in time and sometimes even space from these, the people who are writing these things. Like the Diamond Sutra, I think, was know, second or third century India. It's a very different worldview than we have, so they're going to have a very different set of assumptions, a very different set of cultural, almost like memes that they can pull from to illustrate what they're pointing to. So a scholarly commentary will really help kind of clarify what their language is, what they're pointing to, maybe even being able to offer contemporary metaphors that make more sense. for. And I always tell people that, well, this is a dialogue that goes on at the temple where I teach at. So we say, read it once or maybe twice, three times on your own. Try to get what you can out of it. Forge your own path through the text. Try to understand it from your own point of view and then after you've done that then go to the scholarly or the monastic commentaries and then see what they're saying and then do the same thing kind of take what they're saying and then bring it into your practice and see how you understand what they're saying so <laughs> i just opened up another can of worms the commentaries themselves and and the text themselves are they pointing at this one absolute truth that exists out there or I say not so much. They're talking more about this universal consciousness that you know, exists inside of us, like my consciousness and the consciousness of someone from uh, 5,000 years ago are essentially the same. We're both human beings. We have this inheritance of awareness that manifests through a human body and a human mind. And the Buddhist teachings are based on an instruction manual of sorts on how to 
action with that, that, that body and mind in a way that won't cause oneself suffering, won't cause other people suffering. So it's not as if you're reading the Diamond Sutra and you're looking for these universal truths in like a Christian sense, but you're looking at how to operate in the world, basically. Like a user's manual for the human mind. It's kind of how I look at it. It's interesting you brought up the distinction between Christianity and Buddhism there. I definitely think that Christianity doesn't have as much of this emphasis on engaging in this type of practice. Engaging in this practice leads to a solution to the problem. At least the way that Buddhism sets up the kind of problem solution is like, at least my understanding is, we have desire, causes suffering. Yep. Here's kind of a way to ameliorate desire so that we're not having suffering. Um, and then whereas Christianity is sort of like, well, hey, we have this inherent problem mm. and it can only be solved by this outside intervention. So um, I'm wondering if you agreed with the way that I set up kind of the Buddhist like diagnosis treatment, because I think that every religion or even every philosophy is sort of offering this gnosis treatment head yeah. of here's the problem and here is the solution or at least trying to discover what that solution might be, perhaps, and move towards it. But everybody kind of has some idea of what the problem might be, and the differences in how we conceptualize the problem, I think, is really a source of interest for me. Yeah, the way that the Four Noble Truths themselves are set up is basically how a, an ancient Indian doctor would diagnose a disease. So there's the problem. There's the solution. The problem is dukkha, and then there is a way out of it. The reason why it's there is thirsting or desiring, and then the prescription is the Eightfold Noble Path. So, like, looking at it in almost a medical type of way uh, makes sense, because that's how it was presented. They called Buddha, I believe, as, like, the great doctor, the great physician as well. It's dealing with life as lived. And it's not, there are, you know, elements that would be considered religious, like the, you know, the, re, the rebirth and all that. But how it functions in your daily life is really very pedestrian, yeah, I'll say that. It's just working with wherever you are, with whatever you're doing, just at, at all times right there. And it can seem like this crazy esoteric thing where you're sitting in zazen and hoping to break the chains of suffering and existence, you know, gain enlightenment, all that, but even if you're the greatest sage in the world, you're just, you know, eating and sleeping and talking with people just like everybody else. It's just a very down-to-earth type of thing, although, <laughs> you know, when I'm spinning these crazy long threads about ancient texts and everything like that, it does seem like it's this whole another type of world that we're talking about, but it's always right here at all times well it's fascinating how zen does kind of de-metaphysicalize things like it's yeah. very different from the other traditions in that the way you took birth samsara for instance and just kind of de-metaphysicalized and we're like birth is about change in the moment or in the now whereas you can correct me do you think that there is the cycle of death and rebirth you know you will be reborn sort of thing guesses you don't maybe you do but i feel like there's a lot in the older Buddhist tradition that needs to be re-narrativized and re-mythologized and so it can be kind of mobilized into a more kind of a modern mm -hmm. context that we experience where those things just don't feel quite as real to us. Yeah. So even in the Pali Canon, the rebirth 
there's two ways to take it. I was just reading about someone, I can't remember who it was, recommended a book by Bhikkhu Bodhi about interdependent origination. And he's talking about how, yeah, you know, there are life-to-life rebirth, but there's also birth in the sense that, so the way he described it and the way that I understood it as well is that say you had a tumultuous relationship with your parents and you've been away from home for a very long time and as you're driving and you're like okay you're away from home and you're you're this powerful business person or you've got a very important job and people look up to you and everything and then as you're driving home to meet your parents all of a sudden you put on this other identity of the put upon child or like the or maybe the the fighter child You're, you're creating this new narrative this identity that you have birthed so jati which is the same word for birth you're putting this identity on and then i'm going to fight to hold this identity in me while i'm with my parents it's just like everything else the identities that we have are impermanent and you have to put effort into them to keep them going they naturally will just fall away so that whole time with you are with your parents you're like finding things to get angry about finding different reasons to justify why i am putting on this costume or this identity of whatever type of child you are. And then when you leave your parents' house, say, and you drive home, like, you'd be mad the whole time. You're re-upping this identity, but, you know, in a couple days' time, there's no more causes for it to manifest. You've forgotten about what happened, and you've birthed this other identity, this person that does this particular job or whatever. And that's for <laughs> that particular way that he contextualized that. I'm like, yes, that's what I've been fighting with at my own work. It's like, I don't want to be this. I don't, I don't want to be an automotive worker. This is an identity that I don't want. So that would be you know, pushing away that identity for myself, which is one of the three poisons of pushing things away, grasping at things, and ignoring them. So for me, pushing away identity was a big thing. But the other way to look at it, of course, is you know, rebirth through different lives. And when it really comes down to it, what is it that is reborn? If you go to the old teachings, it's going to be what they call vitnana, which we translate as consciousness, but it's not the consciousness that we think of. You know, I'm conscious of this whole thing. I'm conscious of you there. I'm conscious of myself talking. I'm conscious of this room. It's also able to be translated as life force, so it's sort of the animating factor that powers the mind and the body itself. So at most, it's the most base awareness of just being alive. Even this is dependently originated, so it's always constantly changing over and over. It's never the same in any particular second. There is no essence inside of it that remains the same. It's always changing. So that the old teachings go that when you die... The skandhas kind of they go away, like the the way that your mind functions, the way that we perceive ourselves as a human being. The body falls apart, and then all that remains is this life force. And if you are clinging desperately onto life or some aspect of life, or if you're desperately pushing away another aspect of life, or if you're like putting out a lot of will and ignoring many many things in life, this life force will be propelled by one of the three poisons or maybe all three of them (laughs) depending on the person and that propels itself into another life it it enters the womb where there's a baby goes into it and then that whole cycle starts up again 
So there's a third part. So the way that we kind of look at it now from a Mahayana perspective, this is kind of the one at the temple. I know we're always, Dharma teachers are always talking about how we interpret these teachings and the one from one of my Dharma brothers, Reverend Kunga. He looks at it, and I kind of like the way he does too, that since everything is all interdependent, every second we're being reborn anyway, the parts of us that live on after we die, like our influence is still out there like an echo of ourselves. That's also kind of what's happening right now, although it seems like we're here doing all these types of things, that the waves of influence that we're producing out in the world still continue on, either through our children or through our acts or the people that we talk to or our teachings or anything like that. I kind of like a mesh of the two of like that third and fourth one where there is some type of life force that goes on, now, whether that's some type of spiritual life force or if you interpret it through the lens of the fourth thing, like everything's all interdependent. I kind of fall somewhere in between those two. I know f- when I first started reading about the teachings, uh, like most people, I'm like, oh, rebirth sounds so stupid. Like that, uh, that <laughs> like who would ever believe that? How could you ever believe that? You know, coming at it more from like a scientific point of view but you know after practicing for a long time and interrogating my own we become samskaras basically our karmic imprint all the ways that we think about the world all the ways that we interact with the world are pre-programmed some of it we've programmed through just interacting with the world seeing that even the scientific point of view is itself also a samskara, something you do have to ascribe to, then it would naturally fall away as well unless you give it the energy to keep it going. I kind of like, okay, maybe there is something to this. Maybe maybe I if I'm just being so solid by saying no, this absolutely can't be true, then I feel like I'm almost pushing it away you know, which causes suffering itself. Very subtle suffering, but just leaving an open mind, being like, how can I say what happens after? I don't have any type of special knowledge about metaphysical issues or anything like that, so I just kind of try to keep an open mind about it. I appreciate that detailed discussion. It it makes me think of there's a there's a Japanese Christian apologist who I read back in college and have been rereading lately for a book that I'm writing. And he wrote in the early 1600s, uh, he wrote a text called the Myote Mondo, his name Fukansai Habian. And he actually trained as a Buddhist monk before converting to Christianity. And he, in that book, he has this extensive discussion of all of the schools of Buddhism in Japan at that time, where he basically lays out their teachings and his argument the whole way is that they have no way to justify ethical action because the teachings of buddhism basically says that there is no self to be ethical and there is no self which could endure into say an afterlife where ethics could be rewarded or punished and so his basic argument is that buddhism is a form of nihilism there's no distinction, there's no self, there is nothing, and therefore uh, there's no ground for why one would be ethical because there's no punishment or reward for being ethical, and there's not even an entity, the self, which could be ethical. So it kind of raises for me a question like you were talking about. 
to me, the biggest problem with rebirth with a Buddhist framework is just this idea of something that could endure to another life. To me, it kind of seems like a Buddhist theory pushes towards this idea that there isn't that thread that kind of connects the whole person together, that whatever that thread is, is something that's illusory. Yet we do experience this continuity over time, mm-hmm. which is which is interesting. We just kind of naturally experience continuity. And sometimes that continuity gets broken up and we have to work with other people to kind of bring those pieces back together. But even that, but I think that that process of narrativization Buddhism is pointing out, hey, that is a, that is an illusion. Like that's not really real, even if it's kind of what holds you together in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, kind of, what you think about Habian's critique, as well as the comments that I made about enduring self-unity. Okay, so it's a two-parter. I'll start with the, the other uh, first part. So, yeah, is there a way to justify like acting? well to other people yeah so for us the Buddhist point of view of this would be that once you get to the point where you see how intimately interlinked everything is so instead of seeing the world as these separate objects that are just existing out there on their own, and so separate objects would include ourselves as well, how everything is so fundamentally interlinked with each other that there really are, there's no hard boundaries. There are contingent boundaries, of course, that we can see. So the, the illusions that we have that things exist separately, the illusion itself is, real and real is a bad way to put it, but I'll, I'll use it anyway for now. <laughs> so see this cup over here, I do experience it's something real, something that does have existence on its own side, but if I drop it on the floor, it, it suddenly disappears. Where did it go? Was it ever really there to begin with? That doesn't deny the fact that I can pour coffee or tea or water or whatever into it and then use it for this particular type of purpose. So then it ends up being very utilitarian almost from that sense. So. When we see that the cup is or isn't there, it gains its existence as a cup through our own mind. We assign it that name. So we are intimately linked, not just physically to the world, but conceptually too. So we're actively helping to create how the world around us functions and how it's pulled apart into different little pieces. So that means that the divisions we see between us and other people are all part of our mind as well. So that once we interrogate our own minds, we interrogate the way that that we fundamentally view the world and interact with the world, we see that we're so intimately linked with everyone that if somebody's suffering over there, like that is part of my own suffering as well. You can't just... (laughs) People have used (laughs) no self to justify all sorts of horrible things we know from you know the kamikaze attacks in World War II. I just want to point out Japan specifically, but that's the one I'm more comfortable with. Even China, there would be warrior monks that would go off and fight against other temples and stuff like that, and that doesn't seem particularly Buddhist. But the real idea is that we're all very much interlinked together, 
And I know it doesn't seem like, okay, there's some guy on the other side of the world who's poor and dying in a gutter somewhere of no fault of my own. I didn't do anything to put him there, did I? But, I mean, you're still interlinked with this person. Not the way that you are with your neighbor. You, know, you walk out and see your neighbor, you can interact with them, but even that there's someone out there suffering, I mean, that whole cycle, you're intimately linked with it. That's kind of how the rebirth thing works as well. The point to out this fact is that this is from the old school perspective that, man, in your next life, you you might be just like that guy. You don't know. That's kind of why they were always saying like, not to eat food because you know, your, your mother might reincarnate into a cow and you might end up eating your mother. You don't want to do that. That's kind of a silly way to look at it from our perspective, but still it doesn't deny the fact that we are all interlinked. Like if there's a whole section of society that's not doing very well, either educationally or monetarily, or they have unfulfilling jobs, like that's going to that weighs everybody down. You want everybody to succeed in life and you want everybody to be as self-realized as they possibly can because that benefits everybody. Imagine if the guy in the gutter, if he'd been raised in a middle-class family. Maybe he could have discovered a cure for something that would help the whole world or some type of invention that could help everyone. Maybe he wouldn't. You don't know. But not even being given that chance. If you raise him up, then maybe even your own life could raise up. Just, you know, all lifting the waters raises all boats, as they say. So, from my perspective, the not-self actually is even, even more intimately ties you with the rest of the world than it, if you're looking at it as if we're these separate individuals that are completely distinct from everybody else. So you decide to invert it and basically say, well, if the self is not a reality, we could go one direction with that and be like, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. But instead, you would take it in the other direction and say, well, actually... This just goes to show the depth of dependence and connection that we have with the rest of the world. And that that should be kind of a motivation for understanding the way that our actions affect others and how those actions do involve us as well. So to love other people is to also love ourselves and to love the group. As well. Yeah, if you have no self, I'd even argue that your actions have even more consequence because that ends up being you are your actions. It's not just acting physically out in the world, but it's you know, acts of body, speech, and mind. If you have no self and your mind is just this, I don't want to say cesspool, so that's not a very nice word, but if it's this cauldron of hate and anger, that's what you are now. You, <laughs> and a lot of people might come to the conclusion, like, okay, I'm just so mad about everything, but I've got this pure calm soul in the center that is unaffected by all this anger but from the no self perspective it's saying that no i mean you are what you do like the actions that you create out in the world inside your mind that that is you that's all that you are there's no escaping the consequences of your action that's one of the oldest teachings of the buddha the only thing that you really have possession of is the effects of your actions I kind of take that to heart. So that it's like I could go out and scream at somebody when you're driving. It's very easy to kind of get that I'm the only one that exists type of attitude and all these other people outside driving around are obstacles that I need to get past. So that's just this default. Boom, you get whatever reason, you get in that little hermetically sealed box and you start moving and these other people are doing the same thing. You just get that caveman idea of it's just me versus these 
automatons out there. With the no self, it's like, okay, we're all part of this group that's driving. Each one of us has their own particular agendas. The people in the other cars, I don't know anything about them other than the fact that they're human beings who are also trapped or caught up in the cycle of samsara, just like I am. They've got significant others. They've got a mother and a father. Maybe they've got kids. Maybe they have a job that they hate. Maybe they have a job that they love. Maybe someone just broke up with them. So you kind of... It's like that meta idea. We don't really call it meta in... And we focus on compassion, but having that no-self is so much easier to push out that compassion to people, at least I find for myself. Although, <laughs> yeah, they say the compassion, you extend it to other people, but you know, since I'm also a person, I should also extend that compassion to myself as well, because you know, I'll still be driving, and every now and then I'll catch myself just being upset, <laughs> to say the least, that someone just driving, you know, who's not really paying attention on the road, so it's not a thing that you get into and then it's just all done. There's no point where you have a particular realization and then you're done practicing and you don't have to ever monitor yourself or anything. The real completion of the practice, so to speak, would be to always just be practicing. That's all you can really hope for. The old school called it guarding the sense gates, which is guarding the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, always watching what's going on at those sensory input gates and so that if something happens that you react to or that you know that you're going to react to negatively, you can catch it before it even has a chance to enter the mind and then bounce around and then come out as either you know, an unskillful words or unskillful actions. I'm curious if you make a distinction between compassion and love. Is that a distinction that you've given any thought to or... Is there any discussion of that in your community? So it really comes down to the, to the particular person. At the temple, when we teach classes, about half, maybe even up to three-quarters of the people that I interact with personally are or have been Christian. So they don't talk about compassion as much. They will typically just say love, but basically mean the exact same thing. And there's always that little philosopher part of myself that's like, no, don't use love. That's a Christian idea. Just use compassion. But we're in the very beginning of forging the, the American way of viewing and discussing Zen and Buddhism itself. So if I'm forced to make a distinction, I would say that... I don't even know if there really is. You can look at the stereotypical way of that love is just this me as a singular being that exists just different for the world and then it's you, this other person, so it's very dual. But if you really are loving someone as you know, a proper way that's fruitful for both people, you're not going to be interacting in this dualistic way. You're going to be working in almost a not-self way, basically. That's compassion right there, I, I believe at least. Interesting. Yeah, I <laughs> it's it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, right? two completely different traditions I'm, coming together and trying to find a, a common vocabulary and a common worldview to even discuss what the differences are between each other. And I see that every day. I do the preceptor meetings with some of my fellow monastics or my fellow teachers, 
and people are grappling with these issues in their lives like right now as we speak they're trying to figure out how to integrate buddhist teachings in their christian faiths to varying degrees some people they've come to buddhism because their christian faith has fallen away there's other people who have come to buddhism because they have this a more expansive view than what the mainstream Christian teachings are, and they see that Buddhism offers another way to enact their faith. And then, you know, they'll they'll come up against certain teachings where, like, oh, that kind of that doesn't sound like that kind of vibes with my Christian faith. But then, they, you know, look into it more deeply, and like, okay, yeah, it really does. It's exciting because I, I, for the longest time, I was very anti-Christian stuff. Not that I was like. Some atheist dude screaming at people on the street or anything like that, but I was just focused, <laughs> maybe online a little bit, very focused, just <laughs> just focused on Buddhism. And through Buddhism, I was able to come to an understanding, to a peace with the Christian parts of my past. And then seeing how people are actively integrating both practices into their lives, it's kind of a wonderful thing to see, I think. There's a lot to be said about this kind of coming together of Christianity and in Buddhism that is very interesting. We're at such an early stage, no idea how these two are going to bloom together and like help push each other further into the culture and into people's lives, but we're like right there at the very beginning of it. We're like third century China where the first couple sutras have come over and people are trying to figure out how this fits into like a Taoist or Confucian mold. Some people are like, oh, we've got to get this Buddhism out because it doesn't fit with what we're doing whatsoever but then there's all these other people that are like ooh these things they're saying the same thing they're just talking about it from different ways it's kind of happening with Christianity right now and Buddhism and it's really cool <laughs> well what's interesting is you live in a very uniquely Christian oh. environment as well yeah. like as I'm reformed yep. and theologically Presbyterian in my polity and so the reality is that Grand Rapids is sort of like <laughs> yeah that's the home mm -hmm. base. I mean, I'm not Dutch, so like there's that angle of Dutch yeah. reformed is a little different because it has the Dutch cultural element to it. But the reality is that theologically and in terms of a lot of like cultural norms and the ways of talking about Christianity and the tradition, I grew up in that. And I still very much think in terms of Calvin and mm -hmm. Bart and these type of thinkers really loom large in my mind. So it's just interesting to me that where you live is probably has some of the highest percentage of Christians in any part of the country and a very particular, yeah. unique type of Christian as well. I would imagine it would be an interesting experience to be a Christian in that type of a place. Yeah. And it might be the sort of thing where folks who are trying to be Christian and don't find themselves fitting in might be looking for other resources. Is that kind of your experience? Yeah. Yeah, I do believe so. The... I, I, <laughs> It's nice to talk with someone that like they, an actual experience of how Christian this area really is. And I'm, and so Grand Rapids is very you know, Christian and conservative. I'm 30 miles to the west and southwest, which is even more Christian than Grand Rapids. Like I just drive down the one road and it's just church after church after church after church. It's very, very heavily Christian area, as you said. And yeah, people come to the temple for different reasons, but it's always an interesting synthesis because one of 
one of my Dharma brothers, he, he's a Buddhist, originally started out in a Tibetan tradition, but his wife is Catholic, and they will go to each other's services. So she sometimes will come to the temple. He will sometimes go to a Catholic service together, and they seem to to have found a nice common ground. They both practice each other's teachings, find a synthesis between the two. There are a lot of people, though, that will have a lot of, we'll call it baggage, bad energy from their experience with Christianity. You know, maybe almost like religious abuse. You'll find a lot of times where people will be very wary of talking with their family about the fact that they are you know, practicing Buddhism as well. Uh, to the point where they're scared to even begin that type of conversation. So we are a bit of a safe haven as well for people that want to find a different outlet for their spirituality. We're very open. Anybody can come in. Christian, Muslim, Hindu, anybody. It doesn't... There are... On the surface there are things that seem like you can't reconcile, but people, they're reconciling them. Like right now, you can, if there's parts of Buddhism you don't like, like the rebirth aspect, just, you know, I say, reinterpret it as if it's only happening in your life right now, which has been part of the Dharma even since the beginning. And it really always comes down to what you're doing right in this moment, right now, face to face, face to face with somebody else. And you're always practicing for those moments as well where, you know, the rubber needs to hit the road. If somebody is really in trouble and they come running up to you, instead of having this scattered mind, you're able to be right there with them when it's go time, basically. And for some people, go time is, it's depending on their life, maybe it's like all the time. Do you think that there are differences that really are worth getting hung up on? Think about the deaths of the two founders of the religion. I think about the way the Buddha died kind of just peacefully with this smile on his face, surrounded by people who loved him and cared about him. And then I think about the death of Jesus and just like the blood coming down his face, his incredible doubt even, Lord, where are you? And the pain of that travail and being abandoned. I think about those two things as kind of these symbols. I don't know, I kind of juxtapose them on my mind. You know, I asked you earlier about compassion. I think about compassion and benevolence and these sort of emotions when I think of the Buddha, whereas with Christ, I think about this this painful love. And I wonder if, in your opinion, are there really deep or distinctive differences? How do you interpret those kind of like, how do you interpret the differences in those images and what have you thought about that? Yeah, the deaths of the two founders really have had a cascading influence over the, the centuries. Uh, yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. So I don't have not grown up in a you know a traditional Buddhist culture, so I can't speak for maybe these types of issues also occur you know somewhere that is a facet of their their life but here it does seem that some people not everyone like my mother is not like this at all she's quite the christian lady herself where people can take that whole suffering idea in christianity and really turn it around into a weapon for people especially against their children that's a very particular type of person that does that but you run into this quite frequently where you're like man they would beat me within an inch of my life and they're going to use things of Jesus as 
they're re backing up the reasoning. You do see a lot of that. Well, I, I would suspect as well in Buddhist countries, kids probably get disciplined harshly like that as well. And I don't know if they use the Buddha's name in order to <laughs> justify that or not, but the fact of the matter is that this is something that you see a lot in people who come to Buddhism from Christianity. And not even necessarily so much that they're trying to get away from Christianity, but they're trying to break those cycles and they see Buddhism as a way to be able to interrogate themselves, to understand how that karmic cycle is manifesting in their lives and to hopefully be able to break that and to use more skillful ways of interacting with themselves and their children and their family. The thing about doubt is interesting too. You're like, you know, Jesus on the cross had that great doubt. There is a great doubt as well, at least in Zen. And I, I remember thinking back on you know, seeing Jesus up on the cross where he's like, like even he didn't, like he's God, right? Like why would he... <laughs> Doesn't he know that like he's gonna boop, go right back up into heaven? Like maybe apparently he didn't, which kind of speaks to the human condition in general. But for for Zen, in order to really get the most out of the teachings, to really realize what it is that we're trying to do, to see that original nature, to manifest that Buddha nature, your inherent enlightenment in your real life, they always say you need a great doubt. Between sudden and gradual teaching, Soto was somewhere in the middle, but you hear them saying, just practice your zazen, just look at the wall, and then it will just happen by itself. But the Renzai schools, and Dogen talks about it too, you do really need this, this real visceral motivation to dig into those teachings as hard as you can. Like for me, that's absolutely true. I mean, I practiced for you know twenty years, and I wouldn't call it a lackadaisical practice, but it wasn't motivated by a great doubt. Ten year relationship came to an end. My buddy suddenly died of a heart attack. Great doubt suddenly <laughs> awakens in your practice, and I just look. I felt as terrible as you could feel. And I remember telling myself, okay, I'm going to put the practice to the test. If this practice can't sustain me or can't do anything for what I'm feeling now and how I'm going to get through this next couple months, couple years, or whatever of my life, like if it's making me feel worse, then I'm going to abandon Buddhism. I'm just going to, who knows what's going to be next. But I tell you what, I buckled down and I just watched what was happening. I had this master course in dukkha and samsara and, and just how we create our own suffering, how our suffering is co-created with the things that happen to us out in the world and that great doubt I mean, if I, that hadn't come to fruition I wouldn't be here right now I don't know what I would be doing, it definitely wouldn't be teaching Zen for sure as I would have just cast it to the side but great doubt is good your experience makes me think of the first chapter of Nishitani's Religion and Nothingness, where he talks about the encounter with nihility. He used that exact phrase, the great doubt. The universe doubts itself in you. You experience almost like the whole world is doubting itself within your experience. And it's only that that he says catalyzes the kind of religious quest 
I think that's a cool chapter. I really like Nishitani. I don't know if you've read that, but it really made me think of. Yeah, I've only read a little bit of Nishitani. I tried to get his book a couple times, but it's so expensive. I, <laughs> I think typically I need to get it. I ran across it in a used bookstore. I'd never even heard of him. I was in Seattle one summer and I was just in a little bookstore and I was like, oh, this looks really cool. So I just uh, must have got it at a, at a discount because it was, you know, just crammed in a corner somewhere. So maybe I just got lucky. I might be making that up too. It's hard to say. <laughs> I'll double check later. But yeah, I've read articles about him. He's pretty uh, intrigued. The cross between Eastern and Western philosophy kind of coming together. Who was it? Stephen Hine also has done a little bit of that. He is both a Heidegger scholar, I believe, and he's definitely a Dogen scholar. And he'll bring those two together. And the overlap is pretty intriguing. Although with Heidegger, you can tell that he's crafting this perspective you know he's basically creating it on his own he's got a little bit of inspiration from those original greek thinkers but when you compare him to like 2000 year tradition that's been thinking about these issues the entire time and it's quite different it's too bad that I don't think heidegger even zen buddhism and zen were known at his time but not very well I don't think. The Kyoto School, those who were part of it, like Nishitani, I believe Tanabe and Nishitani both went over to Germany and yep. studied there. And I know for a fact that Nishitani and Heidegger met. There is a story that Nishitani did share a text on Zen with Heidegger, and it seems like there's an indication he might have read it. But other than that, it's it's really hard to say. So that conversation is real. They went over there, they studied with him, they met him were part of his seminars. And so, yeah, I, I love that conversation. And it's definitely a, there's a whole generation of folks like Joan Stambaugh, for instance, who were studying that. And it's just kind of died out as a piece of research as kind of like a, a line of research. But so there's an opportunity for any, for young scholars to jump in there, learn some Japanese, learn some German and keep going at it. Cause I think it's fruitful, but I think I'm going to wrap things up here. This has been a great conversation. I really liked your analogy of kind of what's going on right now as like the introduction of Buddhism to China in the second or third century. I think that's a really cool way of seeing things because I do think there is this conversation that Buddhism and Christianity are having. And I don't know where it's going, but to me it seems really worthwhile, really valuable, because I think that the differences probably are substantive but the overlaps are also so substantive as well for me too historically it just seems like buddhism is probably the other most influential non-abrahamic religion in history to me it's kind of the most substantive competitor i guess you could say in the kind of the mimetic field of of religions buddhism christian are kind of the, the two big ones in my mind because it seemed like everything else is just variation from the core of the... But anyways, I think that's really cool. I like to think about it that way. And that also means that there's a long road and conversation ahead of us that we can enjoy and, and work through together. Definitely, yes. It's been great to have you. I hope that you are able to enjoy your break oh, yeah. from your labor <laughs> and that that clearing is a space where you can get some vision yes. where you can think about what to do next and that you would be led into something more life giving yes, thank you very much and it was wonderful talking with you as well awesome 
Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the next conversation on Simsar Audio. I am going to be having Quinn on, and we're going to be talking about Nagarjuna and the relationship between Nagarjuna and Hegel. So keep your eye out for that. I'm really excited to share that conversation with you all as well.